We continue our catechetical series. You know, we've left off uh, for a while during the uh, Christmas and New Year's season, just left off for a few weeks, and now we're getting back into it. And, um, you know, I was, I was uh, um, interacting with a few people this, this past week, and we were, um, you know, there's so many different churches, and a lot of churches, what you will find today is that, and this is a good thing, they have a statement of faith. I think every church should have a statement of faith so you know what the church actually believes, because not all churches are the same. A lot of times you find in these, in these statements of faith, they're, they're, kind of, they're somewhat brief, they're helpful, but they're somewhat, they're somewhat uh, brief and very, very basic. And what we have in our church is we have a vision statement, we have core values, but then what we have are what are called confessional standards. And the Protestant churches um, historically have had creeds and confessions. So we confessed just a moment ago the Apostles' Creed, which is very basic, right? It contains just the very basis of what we believe. That's why we call it, a, we call it an ecumenical creed because it's confessed by m- many of their churches who are different than the church that we have here. But more specifically, we have what are called catechisms and confessions, which are, if you think of a basic statement of faith or creed as a skeleton, what the creeds are, or what the confessions and catechisms are is they're like flesh on top of the skeleton that fills out that skeleton, right? It makes it beautiful. And that's what we have here. And one of the confessional standards that we have is called, and it goes back all the way to 1563, it's called the Heidelberg Catechism. And what we're doing is we're picking up on the catechism's uh, treatment of various doctrines. We've considered a number of basic doctrines, and now what we're going to do is if we are focusing on a new series in the morning in the book of Esther, in the catechetical series, what we're doing is we are focusing on what we call Christian ethics. How we are to live before God in a way that is pleasing to him based upon something that many of us are familiar with, it's the Ten Commandments. And so, in light of that, we're going to deal with the, the first commandment. That is, you shall have no other gods before you, which is a really basic statement. But once you begin to unpack it, you see there's really... There's a lot there, and there's a lot of implications for our lives. So what I want to do is, uh, A.V., I didn't tell you this before, so it's, it's okay, but um, if you could move beyond this, go to the catechism first. Can you do that? There you go. And then once we're done with this, we're going to go back to the passage from uh, 1 John. So as we normally do, I ask the question, and then we're going to confess uh, the answer together. So let's look at question uh, 93. Uh, no, actually, uh, 94, I'm going to question 95. Here's, here's uh, Q&A 94. Here's the question. What does the Lord require in the first commandment? And let's say together. That for the sake of my very salvation, I avoid and flee all idolatry, witchcraft, superstition, and a prayer to saints or other creatures. Further, that I rightly come to know the only true God, trust in him alone, submit to him with all humility and patience, expect all good from him only, and love, fear, honor him with all my heart. All right, so real quick, because I'm not going to deal with the sermon in itself. Oftentimes in the treatment of the commandments, we're called upon not only to keep ourselves from something, but to take on another thing. So you see here in what we just confessed together that we are called to avoid and flee such things as idolatry, which we'll define in the sermon itself, and then matters relating to the occult, witchcraft, superstition, and then here's an allusion, 
to the Roman Catholic Church, prayer to saints, and to other creatures. Rather, we're to trust in God alone. Okay? Now, one other question to answer, 95. All right. Here we go. What is idolatry? And let's say it together. Idolatry is having or inventing something in which to put our trust instead of or in addition to the only true God who has revealed himself in his word. All right. Now, more importantly, let's draw our attention to the scriptures now. If you put on uh, 1 John, there we go. If you have a Bible, take a look at that. Verse 13 to the end of the chapter. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have towards him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is a sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has, born, has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. All right, so, uh, you know, there... (laughs) You notice when, there's, when we've been reading through the scripture passage, I don't know if you caught this, but there's, there's a lot of things in here that kind of jump out at you and you kind of go, what does the Apostle John really mean by this? Or what does he mean by that? Or what does it mean that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one? I mean, Pastor, didn't you start the service with Psalm 115, verse 3, where God is up in heaven and he does whatever he pleases? Didn't we hear this morning that God is sovereign, he's control of everything? And yet John says, oh, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Isn't there a contradiction there? You know, so there's all kinds of things in this passage that kind of jump out at us. But we're not going to address these things now. What I really want to address is that final verse the way that he ends this letter, little children, keep yourselves from idols. A.V., um, if you get off the scripture for just a moment um, and go back to the Heidelberg Catechism, uh, because I forgot to mention this, go all the way to the end. Um, text Pastor Phil questions for discussion, because we normally have a bit of discussion time afterwards. If there are no questions, fine. But I think this is the kind of sermon that might uh, incite some questions on your part where you say, you know, could you... Could you uh, you know, elaborate on this or that, or what do you think about this or that? So just, just leave that up there if you, if you would. Now, I want to draw your attention, though, back to the Scripture reading. And it says at the very end, if you have a Bible, take a look at, at the very w- the way that it ends. Verse 21, little children, keep yourselves from idols. And I don't know about you, but when I, when I look at the Scripture, it just seems like kind of a... Uh, I don't want to sound irreverent, but kind of a weird way to, to, to end a letter. I mean, look at what happens um, before that. Look at verse 20, where it says, there's a reference to Jesus, right? That Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus 
the Son of God, or the Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true and eternal life. And you think, what a wonderful way to end an epistle or a letter. Just leave it at that. But what we have here is we have kind of what we call an attachment or an addendum, it seems to be. Um, Attack on. It's like John says this and this and that, and he ends with the name of Jesus Christ, and then he just kind of tacks on this, this matter, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Just kind of a, a strange, abrupt way of ending the letter. But, but I want you to consider something, and that is this. John is making a reference to Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He is the true God and eternal life. And he is the one, on the basis of the Scripture, to whom we must submit our heart and our lives. And if we're going to do that properly, then little children, John is saying, keep yourself from idols. Because when you introduce, and I'll get to this matter of idolatry in just a moment, but when you introduce an idol in your life, According to the definition of the Heidelberg Catechism, what you're doing is you're trusting in something in place of or alongside of the one true God. And if that happens to you, then your commitment, the commitment of your heart and your mind and your life to Jesus Christ has been compromised. So you get why John now ends the letter by saying, little children, keep yourself from idols. But here's, here's here's a question we need to think about. Just what is an idol? What is an idol? Now, if if you've been raised in the Christian faith and you know your Bible somewhat, you know that the matter of idolatry is sprinkled throughout the Bible, both Old and New Testaments, all over the place. But the fact of the matter is is that I think there are many Christians who who grow up in the Christian faith, but they never really grapple with what idolatry is. All right? And and, and the, the word idol or plural idols or the noun idolatry is, is not found in common parlance or our common conversation. Uh, oftentimes, among Christians, we don't oftentimes use the word idol. And especially if you go on the street and you're dealing with non-church people, you never hear them really talk about idol or idols or idolatry. So, what, what is an, an idol? And I, I think if, if you would pose, listen, if you pose the that matter, if you ask that question to somebody on the street, say, what, what comes to mind when you think of an idol? They'll probably say, well, I don't know, like a little stone god or something that people bow down to and worship and pray to. You know, like when you go to the Chinese, some Chinese restaurants and you see those little Buddhas in front of the restaurant and, you know, they put little pieces of fruit in front of it, stuff like that. I, that's what I usually think of when I think about an idol. All right. When you look at the Bible, however, um, an idol is, is, is much more extensive than just some kind of stone or wooden god that you oftentimes read about in the Bible. So um, here, here, here are some ways of thinking about idolatry. There was a man named uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones who spoke about um, idols as things in our life that we find in the world, in the creation, that occupy our minds and our hearts to such a degree that God is deoccupied. That is, where God is kind of pushed to the periphery or the sideline of our lives. A man named John Stott uh, referred to idolatry or an idol as a God substitute. 
Again, this, this catechism that we went through defines an idol as something in which we place our trust in place of or alongside of the one true God. I want to give you a definition of idolatry that comes from a man named uh, Tim Keller. And it's such a good and extensive definition of idolatry that I, 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 wanna, I want to uh, uh, consider that uh, with you. I want to cite it. If you would put that up there from uh, Tim Keller. Okay. He writes this. The great Martin Luther encourages us to look at idolatry in this way. Anything we look to more than Christ for our sense of acceptability, joy, significance, hope, and security is by definition our God. Now let these words sink in. Something that we adore and serve and rely on with our whole heart and life. In general, idols can be good things. Now this is a really important point. Idols can be good things that we turn into ultimate things to give us the joy and the significance that we need. Then they drive us into the ground because we must have them. A sure sign of the presence of idolatry is inordinate anxiety, anger, or discouragement when our idols are taken away. So if we lose a good thing, it makes us sad, but if we lose an idol, it devastates us. You know, oftentimes we think of an idol as just, just always just a bad thing. And what Keller, on, on the basis of Martin Luther's teaching, basically says is, actually, an idol is based on some creational good thing, but unfortunately, it ends up becoming an ultimate thing in our lives. And as a result of that, we become enslaved by that thing, and we take our eyes off of Jesus, in whom is freedom and life and flourishing. Have you ever thought about idolatry in that way? Well, um, before I start to explain some of these things, when you, when you came to worship and when we started reading the Catechism's treating, treatment on idolatry, what did you have in mind when you thought about an idol or idolatry? If somebody asked you what is an idol, what would have been your response? You know, I think for a lot of us, when we think of an idol, we think of more than a stone god. We think of, of something in our lives that we attach our minds and our hearts to, whereby they begin to overtake us. So again, as I said before, God starts to be pushed kind of to the outskirts or the, the, the periphery or the, the boundaries of our lives. And, and, then, and then as we go through this treatment of the first commandment, we have to ask ourselves, okay, what, what, are, what are, let's get some personal and applicatory at this point. What are, what, are, what are some personal idols sometimes that we struggle with? And, and here, here are some examples, and, and I might be able to not, you, listen, <laughs> we're, all, we're all idolaters. Whether you're a Christian or not, we're all idolaters. Many of you are familiar with this phrase from a man named John Calvin many years ago where he said, our hearts are idol factories. <laughs> you know, it's just this factory in our heart. keeps churning out idols. We also, we also come to idols. So the real question is, what's, what's that one thing in your life that is grabbing hold of your heart and mind right now that is pushing God to the periphery, to the boundaries? Let me, let me give you some examples, and some obvious examples. Things that we find that God gives us as part of his good creation, but that overtake us. Like simple, simple food, things like food. 
Food is a good thing. God puts it in part of his creation. He gives it to us to enjoy. But isn't it interesting how a good thing can turn into a bad thing where if we overindulge, it can begin to affect our health. We put on those extra pounds. We go to the doctor and says, you know what? Your cholesterol's high. You need to cut down. You got to eat this food or that food or you need to cut down food altogether. Or you think of the matter of drink. You know, we saw this morning in connection with the, the uh, Esther how King Ahasuerus was holding this party and he was uh, serving wine. Wine can be a great blessing. You know, you take a look at the Bible and you see, for instance, in Psalm 104 that, that wine can be a beautiful thing. It is to be enjoyed. But, oh, isn't there a fine line sometimes between enjoyment of a glass of wine or two or three or four and then all of a sudden you got that buzz going on and you got inebriation or how easy isn't it to be addicted to that kind of thing? Or you think of uh, sex. You know, God puts, God puts sex into the creation, right? And it's, sex isn't a bad thing. God created sex to be enjoyed, but, you know, according to the Bible, within the certain boundaries, right, in the context of marriage. You know, God doesn't say, you get married to your, your spouse, but I, I, want you, I want you to stay away from that. You know, the early church had that idea that, that somehow physical relations, that was, that was a bad thing. So, so you know, uh, abs, abstinence, celibacy was, was elevated as something good. That's not biblical. God says, I give you sex to be enjoyed within the boundaries of marriage. But how easy isn't it where our hearts start to get occupied with that to, to a degree that we look to someone other than our spouse? Or sex before marriage? Or what we find is just, we, we fall into pornography, right? A good thing turns is diverted into an area that's not healthy for us. It begins to enslave us and can kill us in the end. Or a couple others. How about work? God calls us to work. Six days you show labor. Seventh day you show rest. So there's a, you know, oftentimes we think of the fourth commandment as just as a time to rest. No, it's a, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a command to work. But sometimes work can overtake us. Don't we know that, guys? Right? Women too. I mean, we... We get so overworked that what happens, then, then our relationship to Christ or our spouse or our family begins to suffer or one other, one other personal idol. And the reason why I bring this up, I wasn't thinking about this, but in the providence of God, uh, I was reading out of the Gospel Coalition this past week about sports as an idol. Now, some of us can maybe relate to that. Sports is where you get physical exercise, it can be a hobby, it can be something that, that builds your esteem, all that. That's, that's great, that's fine but can easily fall into an idol. This is what he writes in the article. Sports and athletics are part of God's creation, but sports can also become an idol. They can start off innocently with a desire to use our bodies to glorify God, but over and over I have seen it trap people in schedules that they can't get out of. I've seen their motivations change. Navigating that fine line between loving sports and idolizing sports is really hard, and that's why we need Christian coaches and leaders to help educate families on moderation. Certainly, we are getting no help from the culture on de-idolizing athletics. So, he says, we need to be intentional about that. Interesting. Well, those are personal idols. One other thing. Um, they're not only... Uh, personal idols that we have, but there are what we call cultural idols that are all around us. I remember some years ago listening to a missiologist speak for 45 minutes on four cultural idols that I'll mention just for a moment here. One cultural idol is relativism. We hear that word today. You know what relativism is? It's where 
we take the authority that we find in the word of the Lord, a final authority, an authority that is good for us, and what we do it is we replace it with the matter of personal opinion. We see that all around us today, right? You go into the university setting. As a Christian, you come into the university setting, hopefully, with an understanding of the truths of God's word, which are absolute and that are good for us. But when you talk with others, what, what often is the case? you got individuals who are talking about, well, that's your truth, and I have my truth. Truth ends up becoming a matter of personal opinion. So that relativizes truth to the point where we say, well, in the end, who really knows what is true truth? Right? We all have our opinions. You find that all the time. There's relativism, cultural idol. You have individualism, where dedication to others, love your neighbor as yourself, are replaced with occupation with self. Or you think of consumerism out in the culture, where, where self-sacrifice and self-discipline is replaced by material things. We've got to have them. Joy and I have moved so many times, and for those of you who have moved in the last year or two, right, isn't it interesting, you've got all the stuff around your house, and you don't think you will have all that much until you have to start packing things up, until you have to go in your garage and take care of all those things. And every time Joy and I have moved, and you probably will share this as well, you say to your spouse, good grief, we could live with half the stuff. That's called consumerism that has invaded our lives. Now, sometimes we need these extra things, but a lot of times you and I have things that go way beyond what we actually need. Or finally this, hedonism, which means just a preoccupation with pleasure, where the call to sexual restraint is taken over by just indulging ourselves in, in the pleasures of this world, in, including sexual pleasures, and they just overtake us, right? And then what happens again? We become enslaved by these things. So, listen, we could go on and on. I mean, we could cite all kinds of idols. But you, you understand why, even for our lives, this is not just a problem of people who are non-Christians in the world. This is a real problem within the Christian community, too. You can, you can understand, because if, if idolatry is naturally in our hearts, and if Kelvin is right, that our, our hearts are idol factories, and if we have cultural idols as well that are, that, that are like a virus in the air that we breathe in every day, you can understand why the Apostle John says, little children, and I don't think he's being demeaning here. It's like, you little kids. But I think, I, I think it's a term of endearment. His heart is going out to the people he's pastoring. He said, my little children, keep yourself from idols. For your own good and for the honor of God, keep yourself from idols, please. The word keep here, um, can also be translated as guard. So if we, if we just use the word keep yourself from idols, it's like put up this, this, this big wall between you and that idol to the point where sometimes we get the idea that that which is good for us and to enjoy by God, we, just, we need to stay away from that as well so that we don't fall into idolatry. A better word maybe to be used in here and one that, that accords with the original language is the word guard. guard. Guard doesn't set up a wall. Guard just says... Enjoy the things that God has given you to enjoy, but be on your guard. Be watchful that they don't overtake you. So a question naturally arises, how do we do that? How do we guard ourselves from idols? Practical matters. It's a practical sermon. How do you keep yourself from being overtaken by an idol whereby God has pushed the periphery? Let me give you a negative and a positive. The negative 
is to, as John says, just be on your guard. Be watchful. Don't live a slothful Christian life. Just don't stroll through your life on this earth, you know, uh, making God just a, a periodic devotion of yours. Commit yourself to the Lord and watch out that you don't get caught up into the trap of idolatry. But, you know, like the Heidelberg Catechism's treatment of the commandments, there's always a positive and a negative. And it doesn't help for a pastor to say, well, you've got to guard yourself. Watch out. Don't do it. Amen. Let's pray. It doesn't help. The positive thing is this. Not only must we watch ourselves, not only must we guard ourselves, but more positively, we must commit ourselves with the time required to cultivate a deeper union and communion with Jesus Christ. Why do I say that? Because the more you cultivate that love and deepen that love for Christ, what you find over time is your, your love for Christ and your commitment to Christ and your intimacy with Christ has grown to such a degree that these other things in your life that tempt you to put God to the periphery begin to become diluted. They begin to dissipate. In time, more and more, you're able to put them away. You might not be able to conquer them completely, but they begin to have less of an effect on your life. But here's the problem. It's not so much that idols themselves are really so strong. Your problem and my problem often, to be honest, is that our love for Christ is sometimes too weak. Right? Uh, C.S. Lewis, you've heard of him as an author. He has a wonderful quote in this regard. A.V., if you'll put that up there. Look at that quote if you would. He says, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. He says, we are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. We're like an ignorant child who wants to go making mud pies in the slum because he can't quite imagine what it's like to make sandcastles at the beach. We're far too easily pleased. Christ says, listen, I'm here. Come to me. I have all the riches of what you need. I give you joy. I give you freedom. I give, I, 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 I give you, oftentimes I use the term, the human flourishing, life, growth, all of these things. It's like, come, let's make sandcastles at the beach. And you know what we say? Eh, I'd rather make mud pies in the slums. That's what you do. When you, when you embrace an idol, you're making a mud pie in a slum rather than making sandcastles at the beach. That kills you every time. It doesn't bring happiness. It brings emptiness. It brings enslavement, right? So the question is, how do we then cultivate that love for Jesus? Well, you know, when I first came here, do you remember what our first sermon series was? Spiritual formation. Spiritual formation. The reason why I preached on that Said not, not because I came here and thought, well, you've got a bunch of miserable sinners here and you're not really walking with the Lord. It wasn't that at all. But I, I, w I, was, I was listening to you and I had discussions with you and I just got a sense you were saying, we want to learn the gospel all over again. We want to cherish the gospel, the good news of Jesus, and we want to be more and more formed in Christ. We want greater intimacy with Christ. So we preach on spiritual formation. The question is, though, how do we, how do we cultivate that intimacy with Christ? Um, just two things to think about. 
and you could you could add flesh to this. But but um, one is something for introverts, and the other is for extroverts. <laughs> okay, uh, and what what I say about introversion should drive you to what the extroverts want and what the extroverts or extroverts introverts need is more extroversion and extroverts need more what the introverts have. So, so spiritual growth in Christ, first of all, requires solitude. Why do I say that? It's because this is what our Lord did. You ever notice when you read the Gospels how Jesus, even in the, bits of the, in the, in the, the midst of the busyness of his ministry where the Bible says that he and his disciples barely had time to eat, you know what he did? He got up early in the morning in order to pray, to commune with his father. He made it a priority. He could, he could say, like most of us, right? I fall into this too. I'm busy. I got to do this and this. And I got all these things. And they may even be good spiritual things on behalf of other people. Before you know it, we're not really devoted to prayer. We're not really cracking open our Bibles. Solitude provides us like Mary and Martha, remember that, where Mary chose to sit at the feet of Jesus while Mary was busy in the kitchen? What solitude does is it allows us, requires us, to leave aside the distractions of our life, and sometimes this stupid device that gets in our way. What are you doing right away when you get up in the morning? Yeah? Let us confess our sins to one another, right? We get onto this thing. Guilty as charged. I'm a news file. love to read the news. What's going on in the world while I'm asleep? Maybe something happened, right? We do that. Get away from the phone. Get away from some of the contacts to spend time alone with the word of the Lord and a time of prayer. And I know that's really obvious. But you know what? When you read the Bible, God does something. God does something. When you're praying, you're, you're joining the communion. Now, solitude is an important thing, but one other thing real quick, and that is this. I want to draw to a close. God has not only given intimacy with him through solitude, but also through community. This is why pathway is so incredibly important. And, and, um, and when I'm talking community, I'm talking getting together, worshiping together first and foremost, listening to the preaching of the word, singing together, interacting with each other, encouraging one another, holding each other accountable. You and I, man, we die, we die without the church. And sometimes, pastorally, I'm dealing with individuals and they're struggling with some kind of sin in their life which is oftentimes rooted in idolatry. And then I'll say, okay, let's talk about the spiritual disciplines. How much alone time do you spend with the Lord? Well, yeah, I could do better at that. Okay. Well, how about worship? What happens in the context of worship? Right? I mean, are you, are you even coming to worship? Well, you know, I haven't been making it really regularly all that much lately. I'm like... Man, God holds out to you the tools. <laughs> all you have to do is take all the tools. And you know what? You're probably not going to get over your idol overnight. It's okay. But you begin the process of dying to it so that Christ can become more and more alive in your life. Church is totally important, right? So in the end, I want to end on this short note. If you and I are going to be increasingly idol-free disciples of Christ. We have to do the hard thing. And you've heard this often times from this pulpit, but you're going to keep hearing it. The most important thing that we can do in our lives is die. I'm not talking suicide. I'm talking dying to ourselves and making the commitment, although we might 
not be able to get over whatever we're dealing with right away, but to make the commitment to die to ourselves and thus die to this one or two or three things that is diminishing our commitment to Christ. We've got to die. How do you die? How do you die to your idols? You know what the answer is? The Bible is really simple. It's called repentance. Genuine repentance. And what is repentance? Repentance is recognizing the idol in your life, committing yourself to dying to it, and asking God to help you with that, to confess the sin of idolatry, and to understand that when you do that in the name of Christ, you are forgiven. You are forgiven. It's not a maybe, not a might. You are forgiven. And then in addition to that, what repentance requires us to do, and we saw this a few weeks ago, repentance requires the fruit of repentance. That is, a demonstration that we truly have repented and that we've asked the Lord to help us with the problem that we have. Lord, help me, because I can't do this on, on my own. And you know what I find in the pastorate? Oftentimes when people cry out genuinely to the Lord in that, so you ever hear these stories, and maybe you've experienced this, where you cry out to the Lord in repentance and faith and trust, and you pray for the working of the Holy Spirit, and sometimes you have people, and again, maybe you identify with this, where God, whatever, whatever you were addicted to, whatever was the idol, God broke it, just like that. And you start off on a new path. But should I tell you what happens normally? Sometimes that happens, according to God's sovereign will. Most often, we go through a series of repenting and dying and asking, repenting and dying and asking. And the more we do that, and the more we commit to that, these battles that we have, more and more we are willing, or we are able and willing to let those battles be defeated in our lives. And slowly, and this is the matter of sanctification, growth in Christ, oftentimes it just goes very slowly. And because it's so slow, sometimes you have Christians who are dealing still with these idols, though they claim to repent and embrace Christ. Sometimes they get so discouraged. They go, am I even really a Christian? I don't know if I'm really a Christian. And you know what? We have to stop that and say, if I have repented, I have believed in Christ, and Christ is sufficient, and my sins are forgiven, and my position is in right standing with God, and I am clothed with the righteousness of Jesus, and devil, and sinful heart, you're not going to take that away. But at the same time, I realize that there's still remnants of sin that cling to me, and these idols still cling to me. And over time, what you find is you keep repenting and you keep committing yourself to Christ, little by little, that gradual victory over these idols in our lives begin to take place. But you've got to be patient and keep coming to the Lord. Keep coming, keep coming. It's worth it, because in the end, it's life. Idolatry, it only ends in enslavement and death. Jesus, oftentimes over time, results in freedom and also in life. So, with that being said, may Jesus be the ultimate then pursuit of our lives. Indeed, because without him we have nothing, and with him we have everything. We have freedom, and we have life. That having been said, we're going to pray, and then we'll sing, and then we'll have a brief discussion time. Heavenly Father, oh man, you know, there are many times like the Apostle Paul, Lord, though a Christian, he would say, that what I want to do, oh, I don't do. 
And that what I don't want to do, I end up doing. The very thing that Nick cited in his prayer this morning, that is the battle of our lives. Father, help us not to give up. Help us to keep drawing near to Jesus. As James says, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. And help us to find our life in him, and the confidence of our position in him. And then, O Holy Spirit, we pray that you would help us to keep fighting the good fight of faith, pressing on to glory land, to the new creation itself, where in one day we will be shorn of all this sin and all this idolatry, and we will be fully cleansed without grieving, without pain, without mourning, without sin, wherein we will see Jesus face to face. Help us to keep pressing on to that, Lord. Indeed, may it be the primary mission of our lives, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.